Please do turn with me this morning to Malachi and chapter 3. I'd like to read the final verse of the chapter before we settle on verses 16 and 17. Malachi chapter 3, page 957, and verse 18. Then shall ye return, speaking of the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God, that's the definition of the righteous, and him that serveth him not. Well, my title this morning is found in verse 17. They, speaking of the righteous, those that fear God, those that serve God, they shall be mine, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophet Malachi is prophesying. This is written, this final book of the Old Testament, you know, not all the books of the Bible in the order that they appear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are in chronological order. But we believe that Malachi is the final book in time in the Old Testament. It is the final book of the Old Covenant, and therefore it has significance. The final words of somebody that dies, we listen very carefully to. The final book of the Old Testament we give special attention to. This is in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They've come back from Babylon where the children of Israel were in exile. They were first in Egypt in the time of Pharaoh, second time in Babylon in the time of King Artaxerxes. And we believe that after that time, the temple has been restored, worship in Jerusalem has been resumed, the walls have been rebuilt under Nehemiah, and now Malachi says to the people, they've already started to decline, and he's going to plead with them. We think this is about AD, rather not AD, BC, before Christ, 430, 430 BC. And of course, after Malachi speaks and writes his little but wonderful book, there will be approximately 400 years of silence. Well, in some ways it wasn't silent because God continued to speak to his people, to speak through the recorded word, the first five books, the prophecies that had already been recorded and were available in scrolls. But as far as written, recorded scripture is concerned, nothing was added. There were the apocryphal books, which are not recorded in the canon of the Bible, the Old Testament, and then the New. And so we say it's 400 years of silence. 
silence. That's not the only time where God has not spoken. If you go from Genesis chapter 3 until we get to the time of Abraham, there was probably 2,000 years of near silence. And you could say in a way, since the book of Revelation was put with the other books of the Bible to make up the whole of the Bible, in a way God has gone silent again. Except he still speaks. Because God cannot be silent. He speaks now through his word. I trust he will speak to each one of us this morning. Verse 18, there is a great division. Do you see it? I can't divide you this morning, but God's word can and will, if you allow it. There is those, the word in key word is discern. In verse 18, when Christ comes back, and I think principally it speaks of his second coming. Of course, Christ would come 400 years after this, and the temple would fall in AD 70, and Christ would prophesy it so specifically when he stood in the temple. But I think this is speaking of his second coming. Do you know Christ is coming again? I don't know when it will be. I very much think it could be in our lifetimes, especially the children here today. When he comes, there will be a division. The sheep and the goats. The blind and those that can see. In this verse, there will be a division between those who are called righteous and wicked. We're all wicked, all of us. There's no distinction. But those who've trusted in Christ, those who've looked to God for help, those who've repented of their sins, and I said last Sunday night, even repentance is a gift, and those that have trusted by faith, and faith is a gift, they are declared righteous. Every single one of us is wicked. But those that trust in God and in his Son, Christ Jesus, they are declared, like a judge, free. No condemnation. You are a wicked sinner. But Christ will say, and has said, because he has died for the sins of all his people. And then, look at the second half of the verse. There's another word that distinguishes, discern. And then it says, between. It says it twice. Between, between between two groups, those that because they love Christ, they desire to serve God, and those that don't serve him. Who do you serve this morning? 
In your life, you serve somebody. You either serve the one true living holy God who calls you and me a wicked sinner, or you serve self and Satan and you serve the pleasures of this world and you serve the lusts of your heart. That's what this verse says. And at the end of the Old Testament, there's this huge division. It's always been like that. When Christ came, he used much the same language. He talked about the great division on the day of judgment when he would come again. So that's the context this morning. The Lord, if you wanted to characterize the whole of the four chapters of Malachi, there's two words, return and remember. Remember that Christ will return. And you see that in chapter 3 and verse 7, just to prove it to you. Even the days of your fathers, you're gone away from my ordinances. And he says to them, return unto me. Return. Return. The children of Israel, the Israelites, they'd gone away. They'd forgotten God. And the second word, chapter 4, verse 4, remember. Remember my Law, the law that I gave to Moses, my servant. Return, remember. You've gone away from God, Malachi says to the people of his time. And I say to you today, we've gone away from God. That's why we come to worship as often as we can. Weeknight, morning, evening on the Lord's day. What do we do? We return. We return to God because we've gone astray. And we come back to remember God's laws, which he gave us, he commanded us to keep, but we haven't. Return, remember. That's the message. Well, he reminds them of some other things. It's just worth mentioning what Malachi says. There were seven particular sins I just mentioned what they are because they're the same that we see today in our nation, in our town, and in our hearts, spiritually or physically. Here's the seven. Mixed marriages between a believer and an unbeliever. That's a terrible thing. Yes, there are those that come to love Christ after they were married, after they were in a relationship, after two became one. But God says, don't go down that path. You have a choice. Marry in the Lord. Secondly, Malachi speaks about false worship. Thirdly, idol worship. Psalm 115. You worship gods with ears that can't hear worship gods with noses that can't smell and so on idol worship i'm about to go to a country that's been called the idol factory of the world 
more idols on more street corners and in more homes than in more than in, in a square mile anywhere in the world. So it said, we can't prove it. Idol worship. God hates it. Instead of worshipping the God who is alive, we make gods with our hands. We do it in this country. Sports stars. Musicians. We lift up people and worship the created instead of the creator. The fourth one, divorce without a cause. Malachi has something to say about that. God hates it. He hates divorce. He only permits it for very specific reasons. He mentions blatant hypocrisy. Worshipping God with your lips and your hearts far from God. Are any of us doing that this morning? What are you thinking about? Shopping? Your plans for the week? That's hypocrisy. You've come to a place of worship. You need your heart, your head, your mouth to be united. And then he mentions unfaithfulness. Seventhly, arrogance. Well, let me illustrate just very briefly before we come to our text. What's Malachi about? It's about a question and answer session. Go back to the beginning of chapter 1. This is what God says. Jehovah, the word Lord in capital letters, he says this, and he says this to everybody here this morning. Listen to this. This is God's voice. Listen to God. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's got authority. This is what the people say. Wherein? Hast thou loved us? God has made you. God has kept you. He's kept you from abortion before you were born. God has kept you through illness and sickness and road traffic accidents. He's kept you through disease. He's kept you from danger, from accident. And you say, how has God loved me? He's given you a conscience. He's given you his word. He's given you a mother and a father. They may not be the best parents. But you say to God, how have you loved me? That's what they did in these days. I don't know whether this is really a conversation or whether it's just a literary device but that's what happens. You can go and read it in your own time. And all the way through these verses, you see question, challenge, answer, arrogant response. Look down at chapter 3 just to show you one more. Verse 8. Will a man rob God of worship, of obedience, and yet you say, how have I robbed God? 
What it is it what is it in my life that I haven't given to God that he deserves? Thankfulness, worship, obedience, faithfulness. I could carry on and on and yet the people say how have we robbed God up until this point of time? If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your breath has been taken up by things that God says he hates, things that he says you shouldn't be involved in. And yet, the people that Malachi spoke to said, how have we robbed God? Very powerful, but we haven't got time to think of any more. Go through, you'll find seven, eight, maybe nine, however you divide them, through these four chapters. There's three statements in Malachi that stand out. The Lord's love, we've looked at that, I have loved you. It's categoric in chapter 1. Chapter 3, we've read it, verse 6. I don't change. My love is constant. It always has, it is, and it will be. My love to you. But you don't acknowledge it. You don't recognize it. You don't appreciate it. And then, in chapter 3, and it repeats it elsewhere, verse 1, I am coming again. His love, his constancy, and his second and first coming. Well, let's come to our text in verse 16 of chapter 3. What do we do in a time when we are the faithful few, some of us, those who are members of this church, those whose names have been written in the church members book that's in my vestry. Those whose names are in the book, I'll explain later. What do we do when the faithful are few, but the skeptical are many? Well, that's really what's answered in these verses. Verse 16 and 17 and 18 they stand out a bit. It's almost like a sort of break in the flow of dialogue that Malachi records for us. Statement, arrogant answer, again, again, again. But verse 16 just stands out. Then, then. What's the then for? Well, the verse before, those that don't fear God, those that don't love his name, those who are arrogant enough to answer back the God of heaven. Verse 15, it says, we will call the proud happy. We will call those who work wickedness, those that should be lifted up, set up. And we will even tempt God. You see, that's what happens today. People say there's no God in heaven. There's no Bible. Pride, that's what counts. What I think. Pride. 
arrogance, forget what God says. I have loved you. I'm not interested in God. Not interested in what he says. It's what I think. That's what counts. Now, here's the faithful few. Verse 16. We're going to notice very briefly three things. Then they, they, those who are written in the book. I think it's an imaginary book. God doesn't really write books with a hand. He wrote the Ten Commandments. But there's two books mentioned that God writes. I think it's metaphorical in the times of Persian kings. In BC 430, the rule of this area, Palestine, Israel, was the Persians. It then moved from being the Persians. There was the Egyptians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Four different rulers. But in that time when this was written, the Persians, they used to write books. Kings would record those who were in his book. And that's the metaphor used here. It says there will be a book of remembrance. A bit like the book of members of this church. You're either in the book or you're not. The date, the name is recorded. And that's the analogy here. They, then they. What do these people do? Three things. They feared. When I was growing up, I used to hear this term. You don't hear it much today. So and so, they're a God-fearer. A God-fearer. Are you a God-fearer? If God says something, do you take account of it? Does it affect your life? Does it affect your soul? If God has said it, that should change everything. A God-fearer. There were those then that because God had said it, they feared. They responded. Their lives were affected. And so the three things, I'll just call them out, they feared, they spoke, and they thought. They feared the Lord. Later on, it says, they feared his name, and it says here, they feared the Lord. It means much the same thing. They feared the Lord. There's a fearing, and then there's a speaking, and then there's a thinking. These are delightful verbs that we can consider. Are they true of you? Do you fear God? Do you fear his name? If God has said it, do you obey it? Do you live in the light of it? These people did. There was only about 50,000 that returned under Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel to rebuild Jerusalem. There was probably two, three more million people still in Babylon. But these people, the faithful few, their lives were characterized 
by these three things. Is this true of you today? A fearing, a speaking, and a thinking. That's what a Christian is. A person that fears the Lord. A God-fearer. One that fears his word and fears his name. I don't mean fear when we shake, although that might happen. I mean a respect, a reverence, an awe, a sense that that word and God is above us and we're underneath it. A sense that if God says it, that should shape my whole life. Is that true of you? A God-fearer. I trust we have lots of God-fearers here this morning. What does it mean to fear God's law, to fear his word, to fear his name? It's somebody who believes that God is who he says he is. Don't believe what I say, my understanding of God is limited. But what he says about himself is true. And it's a full revelation. It's everything we need to know. A God-fearer believes it. A God-fearer is one who believes what he says about you and me. About your life. Your twistedness. Your heart. Your problems. A God-fearer is one that believes the promises of God and takes them at face value and says, if God says it, I'll believe it. If he says he can mend the broken-hearted and my heart is broken, I will believe it. If he says that he can straighten out all the legacy of my past life and remember my sins no more, I believe it. And I see the testimony of those who say that's happened to them. And he remembers their sin no more. A God-fearer is one who believes that he's coming again. And Christ will come to judge, to divide, to distinguish, to discern. And that coming day, is what we live for. We live against that day. How do you live your life? Do you live your life by what the bullies say at school about you? Do you live your life about what people say about you? Do you live your life according to the lies and the propaganda of this age? Or do you live your life according to what God has said? A God-fearer. They that feared the Lord. We want God-fearers. Secondly, these people, they didn't just fear. They spoke. They spoke. You can't be a secret disciple. You can't be somebody that only tells one other. It's not possible. Then they that love the Lord, 
that feared the Lord, that feared his name. They spake. They came forward. They made themselves known. They wanted to be identified. They didn't care what other people thought at work. They weren't ashamed to name their God. They spake. What did they speak about? I don't know. But I have a good idea. I think they spoke about how the Lord delivered them from Babylon. And how as a nation he delivered them from Egypt. And how he'd restored Jerusalem to be a place of strength and beauty. A place where they wanted to worship. I think they spoke of how their lives were changed since they were no longer under a secular king and they were now under the king of kings. They spoke of what the Lord had done for their soul and he will do it for your soul. I think they spoke to one another to encourage as often as they could. Just imagine you went to visit a country you've never been to visit before, a country with an unusual language, different customs and practices, and you go there and there's no, there's no easy guide to the language. You go there and language is completely different. They eat different food. They wear different clothes. They've got different customs and culture. And you feel so odd. You feel so left out. You don't really understand. You don't really like the food. You don't really feel comfortable. Suddenly you find somebody from your hometown who doesn't just know what you say and what you mean, but that person fellowships with you day in, day out. What would you do to that person? You would cleave to them. You would say, can we meet together? Can we pray together? And you find out that they're just like you. They love the things you love. They eat the food you eat. They even have common friends back home. And you have the same relatives. You discover they're related. Isn't that what these people were doing? They feared and they spoke. When you go home at night, if you have an open fire, if you're privileged to have, and before they outlaw it, and the coals and the wood before you left, they were burning brightly. And you get home, maybe after the evening service tonight, and the embers are just there, but they're quite spread out. Bit of wood here, just charcoal bit of glow, bit of coal maybe, what would you do? You put them all together in a heap. Make the heat strong so that they can support one another. Isn't that what we must do? We're few. Why would we be outside? Why would we be scattered? Why wouldn't we identify together? Why wouldn't we be one? Why wouldn't we be close? Why wouldn't we speak to one another 
And how often? Often. They spake often one to another. The wonderful thing in a local church. And this happens here. You have a lady that's had an experience earlier in her life and she sits beside a woman that's going through that exact problem and she helps and she encourages and she exhorts and there's a young boy in his teenage years and he's having a problem at school and that older 27 year old sits down and says I remember that this is what I would do this is what these people were doing all the problems they had they lived in a country they lived in a nation that was worshipping idols they lived in a time that was secular material and they feared the Lord and they spoke often one to another. Do you come to church here once a month? How do you manage? Once a month? That's not often. You're making yourself vulnerable. The coal, the fire, if it was burning, is going to go right down. There won't be much heat left. There won't be much fire. There won't be much colour. Just ashes. Well, here's a third thing. It says that they feared, that they spoke. And then it says they thought. We don't do much thinking today. We go from one issue to another. One meeting to another. One social media notification to the next and the next. Do we think about life, about God, about what he said? There's nothing new under the sun. The problems you have, I have, they're the same. These people knew them. Culture, ethics, living in a secular world. Where do we draw the lines? We don't always get it right. But we can help one another if we have a spirit of encouragement. If we have reverence for the word of God, we can fear God. We can speak often one to another and we can think what on his name. What a better thing to be thinking of than Christ. Do you think about him? If you loved him more, you thought about the cost of salvation more. You thought about his promises to keep you, to hold you, not to fear. How different life would be. How different would face the challenges, the difficulties, old age. I must finish with this. I had a whole another section on what God did in response. What did God do? Metaphorically, I think, he wrote a book. He said, these are mine. They shall be mine, Malachi says. That's not Malachi speaking. That's the Lord. They, him, her, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. The, the name for God, 
speaking of the great army, of the great heavenly host, when he makes up the crown jewels, his special treasure. And in that crown, again, it's a picture. He has this gem and this pearl and this piece of gold which he has refined and made pure. In that day when I come again, at the end of the world, I make up my jewels. What does God do? He writes a book. He makes up his crown. He hears the people. He hearkens to them. And on that day when his judgment will fall, he spares them. That word spare it can also mean choose. Some translations use that. It's not wrong. On that day when he makes up his crown, as it were, he chooses his people. He spares them, chooses them, puts them together, just as a man chooses his own son. Isn't that speaking of Christ as well? well? What does this mean for us this morning? Who do you fear? Who do you speak about? Why is there a church membership here? Those written in a literal book with a date next to them. There's a dear lady today, she's not here this morning. Sixty years this week, she's served here, identified with the Lord's people, fearing the Lord's name, speaking as often as she can with the Lord's people, thinking about his name. And she will be in that jewel when the Lord makes up his crown. There's another book. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't think it's a literal book, but it's a book of all those across the whole of time. Not just those who've become members of this church and said, I'll stand with you, but the martyrs, and those that we've never met. And they're in the Lamb's book of life. The ones that Christ died for. There's those who are in that book and those who are not. Christ didn't die for those who won't come to him. All those he died for will come to him. There is a division. Where are you today? Are you with the Lord? Do you fear him? Do you love him? Do you speak about him? Have you said, this is what the Lord has done for my soul, not what I've done, not what you've done, but this is what the Lord has done. And then do you think about him? Does it shape your whole life? For the rest of your years. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before thee. We fear thy holy name. 
We desire to speak often with one another about the Lord's name and we would think upon him more than anything else. O oh Lord, help us now. In Jesus' precious name.